0: She got the load, I, I met her in a parking lot, and then I had her follow him. to my, actual, one of my personal residence, which I rarely did. I usually would bring him somewhere else, a piece of property or a stash house or something. So I opened up the trailer and I just kind of scanned the situation and I noticed a little wire hanging in the ceiling. And I went up and looked over and it was a battery pack connected to some device with a red dot, red blinking light, and I knew it was a tracking device. And I just put my fingers up to my mouth. I go, don't say a word. I saw a about 300, 200 yards out. A Chevy and Paula sitting off in the distance and I knew that that trailer was being tracked and followed by the feds and I had a good run at this point in the game I had done well over 300 million in sales
1: hey this is Matt Cox and I am here with Eric Canori and Eric has an interesting story he was um it was, it was the it was the like you were the largest.
0: I was one of, one the, of largest the largest high-end cannabis dealers on the east coast of the United States before it was legal in any state. Okay. Late '90s, going into the early 2000s, I had, I actually got popped in 09. That okay. was before it was legal in Colorado. Okay, so we're gonna be doing um we're gonna be
1: doing an interview, and
0: I so check it out. So I mean, let's you know start at the beginning. Like, where where, where were you born? I was born in Rochester, New York. Uh, 1979 January 8th. All right, that's it, man. Shouldn't put all that out there brother, I, right now. So you could probably steal my identity, right? right. <laughs> um, you think I don't already
1: have your identity? Um, uh, I was gonna say, shoot, on uh, Wikipedia, probably. Wikipedia, they've got my my date of birth and everything. Is like, yeah,
0: it's true. Yeah, you can't do much with that.
1: Um, but it's I've uh, New York or Rochester's the only. Well, no, actually, I've been in New York City just recently, but actually went there and went to Niagara Falls. So I've been to Rochester.
0: Yeah, yeah, I was only there you until age don't. six and then I moved out, but that was. Oh, okay, yeah. where'd, you, where'd you move? I moved to uh, upstate New York, Lake George, New York, a little town called Queensbury near, uh, near Lake George. Lived there from age six right up till college. Okay, with their, both, your both parents? Parents or? were divorced when I was two. There was a lot of partying going on back then when my mom's side, so uh, I kind of had the rock style lifestyle around me in my crib. Right. So I grew up in that environment, and um, parents divorced when I was two. My mom remarried when she was four, and then we moved to uh, upstate New York, Lake George, New York, and that's where I started my life, you know, kindergarten and went up from there. Right, but you guys didn't, I mean, from what I understand, you didn't have a lot of money, like, you
1: know, you weren't, like you started selling. um, Yeah,
0: if you looked at at me as an outsider, I was well kept, I had a tucked in shirt, my laundry was done. My sneakers looked okay, I had a backpack for school, packed lunch, but we lived frugally, right? We right. cut coupons on Sundays. We rarely went to the drive-throughs unless we had a coupon. Um, it was you don't wear holes out in your clothes because then you'd have to buy new ones. so you just have to be careful on how we spent our money
1: right when did you so i mean at what point
0: did you decide
1: like you were going to start you know selling pot or? When all the kids, cause, yeah. Because I understand it started slow. You yeah, know I'm yeah. Like, it's not like you woke up one day and said, I'm exactly. going to go open up a disc. Well,
0: it, it, as a kid, as a kid, I always watched the movies, and I liked the fast cars. I liked the pretty women, and I couldn't have any of that. Women didn't notice me in school. I didn't have new sneakers. I didn't have the coolest name brand clothes. I wasn't a professional athlete. Right. I was a very quiet kid that kind of just hanged out, hung out in the background, and I just watched everybody, and I always wanted something more than I already had. So... In middle school, I started selling candy to the kids. I would buy it with my lunch money, 80 cents. Maybe I'd buy eight packs of Pez for 10 cents a piece, flip them, make a buck 60, and then I'd have profit, to, You know, to 80 cents profit, and I could still eat lunch that day. And I started selling candy for a couple of years until I got shut down by one of the teachers, and then I started smoking weed. I started smoking weed probably in ninth, tenth grade, but for me, weed was just weed was a thing that i could do to help me socialize because if i was fucked up i didn't have to really talk about the truth of my life i came from a troubled childhood it was very abusive like not much money and uh drugs were a way for me to hide the reality of my life so i started smoking weed at a very young age but i couldn't afford weed it was expensive like i could mow a few lawns and shovel some driveways make a little money but i still couldn't afford to really also get taco bell or pizza right so eventually Kids started asking me for wheat and I started selling wheat in high school. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, you were, you mentioned this earlier. It's like most people,
1: well, I, you didn't mention it. I actually watched, uh, I think you mentioned it on another video I saw where you were talking about how, like, most people, most, most guys that are selling drugs or come from, you know, a fucked up background. Uh, you know, it's, you know, out of desperation. Like, nobody, very few people, I think, are raised saying, hey, I want to grow up and be a drug dealer you know, exactly. so it's usually out of necessity. Yeah. Right.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but I think, in, you know, in my own case, it's like what I initially when I started doing crime, it was out of necessity. But then you start making the money and it's like, OK, well, now you've got the money, you're doing OK. Then it becomes, I think, kind of an ego thing. I mean, it was for me, you know, it was like once I was doing well, it was like, well, I could have cut back. But instead, now this was something I was good at. I hope you're enjoying the video. I have a quick word from our sponsor, Stanage Watches. We're doing a promotion with Stanage right now where they're offering a watch that they sell for typically $300. They're selling that watch through the channel for $200. The first 10 people that send me an email saying that they want a watch, I will arrange payment with them and shoot you a watch out as quickly as possible. They're great watches. They come in a bunch of different colors and i really like them i appreciate you guys watching go in the description box where my email is and you can send me an email see
0: ya yeah so is that the same kind of no, thing i think it was partly not ego but it's also fear too right i never wanted to go back to a place subconsciously of not knowing where i'm gonna get my next meal right if you like don't know where you're gonna sleep or eat that night that's a place where you're like fuck and that that's that was a I've been there as a child. So I wasn't really that flashy. I actually, I was flashy. Listen, we all want to be seen and recognized. At least most of the men I know. And we just right. have different ways of doing it, whether it's a trophy, the newest sneakers, that coolest car, right. best looking girlfriend, like whatever. We want to be recognized. At least I did. So it feels good when somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, I like your new car, your new bike or this or that. But I'm still kind of a low key guy, but, uh, it cost me a lot to live. Mostly, I spent most of my money on women in hotels. That's where a lot of my money would go, and uh, I didn't have a lot of things because I didn't want to get on the feds' radar. But well, I mean, wait, this this was in high school, right? You're talking oh, about in negative. high school. In high school, I wasn't making a lot of money, man. I make a hundred bucks a week. Right. Well, actually, that's pretty good money. Back then. I was gonna then. say for a, for a seventeen year old. kid? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good money. What am I talking yeah. about? Maybe that. Maybe <laughs> a. Yeah, and then I buy everybody weed and beer. That not nah, well. I shouldn't say exactly how much I was making. I was making enough to eat Taco Bell beer and free weed. Right. Well, so, I mean, at what point
1: did you, when you graduated high school, did you go to college? Yeah, I went
0: to Plattsburgh State uh, University. It's about a half hour from the Canadian border in upstate New York. Okay. And when I went there, I only had about 500 bucks in my bank account. And I remember when I got to college, the, the brochure said that kids should have at least 1,500 bucks per semester for extracurricular activities, which wow. I didn't have. But you had <laughs> I had 500 so. bucks, which was <laughs> enough to buy two ounces and flip and turn into 750 bucks. And then I just started multiplying that and I became the cannabis kid on campus. There were a lot of people that sold cannabis in in in, in Plattsburgh. We are going back 1997, 98, 99, but eventually, I created somewhat of a monopoly and I got the other dealers to buy for me and I, I sh- shrunk my margins down a little bit, but I pretty much had a good control of the market. I buy year three, four of me being there. Well, Where are you getting it from? I mean, if you're starting to move, like, you know what I'm saying? You're starting to move product. I mean, usually the guy, the
1: one guy, you, you're you basically wiping him out pretty quick if you're got buying more and more and more.
0: Yeah. I was, uh, last year at college, I was probably doing about 50 to 50 to a hundred thousand a month in sales. And I was getting, I had about four to five suppliers. I had my townie, a couple townie guys and I had multiple different suppliers. So they wouldn't jack the price too much on me. Cause if they knew they had me, they could, if they knew I was the only place I was getting it, you know, they would charge me whatever, but I created uh, bidding wars. Is this like the cartel, like cartel guys, that they're getting it from the cartel? I wasn't dealing with cartel guys. This is is smaller time townies in Plattsburgh State. Also, there's an Indian reservation about an hour and a half away from there that's right on the Canadian border on the St. Regis River where they basically can smuggle anything you want. Cigarettes, coke, guns, immigrants, uh, and they can do that at night with night vision. They have boats that can do 80 miles an hour in six inches of water, right? Because if they get go, I don't know the exact terminology, but if they get going fast enough, the hull's only gonna sit so much in the water that they can go really, they have special boats that they can evade law enforcement if they are to be chased. And then they get the product to shore, unload it, boom. And so it's coming in from Canada canada was one of where my main supplier i started focusing and working with them because it was a higher-end product it was indoor the stuff that i was getting domestically was all outdoor weed at that time back in 98 99 but uh, when i had the canadian weed that kind of set me apart from a lot of the competition it was a higher-end product that's a ton of money to be making as a college student that wasn't my profit let's say a hundred thousand is revenue that that month i'd probably make if it's twenty, 20 thirty, grand. I was gonna say if it's twenty thousand dollars for a fucking car. I wish I was making twenty thousand yeah. dollars. I'm
1: a grown man. Twenty yeah.
0: thousand dollars a month is a lot of money. Yeah, I it mean. was it was a lot. I, it was a lot, and I even had a little heat on me in Plattsburgh in 01. when I right when I was getting ready to graduate. There was a Coke bus that went down and the, my people that were buying weed off me were taking using my money to go down to the city, Manhattan to buy blow and then bring it back to Plattsburgh and I didn't I kind of knew but I didn't really pay attention. I didn't get too close to it but after they took that little ring down they had a couple of those guys try to wear wires on me. And one of them actually got close to me and I let him come wear the wire on me and I kind of just gave them some false information right. so the case would diffuse itself. And they only watched me for a couple months because I was a smaller player. I mean, doing 100,000 a month, or they didn't even know I was doing that much. They thought I was doing about 50,000. 50, they thought my net worth was about 60 grand. Right. The DEA is not gonna spend money chasing somebody that's only worth 60 grand. Right. They might watch you for a week or two seeing if they can get something they have bigger fish to fry. So,
1: okay, well, so why weren't you a part of the the Coke thing you just did? Why, you, you, you just didn't move coke you just weren't interested no in nah, i just
0: i remember watching the tv show miami vice as a right. kid and i would always I, I loved the fast cars and the uh, women but i also always would see all the heat that came with that yeah and i knew weed was more acceptable like i could stand in front of a judge and be like yeah i sold weed right but if right. i stood in front of a judge and said i sold coke they might be like kid you fucked up yeah but weed it's like chances are the judge probably smoked weed at some point
2: right
1: i was
0: gonna say i i have um
1: so i wrote a story
0: called uh
1: um, american narco uh and it was this guy carrie um uh and his buddy they were selling weed for the cartel in uh um fort myers and he was offered like multiple times they tried to get him to start moving coke and he just he absolutely wouldn't do it like he was and it was the same kind of thing he was like i just felt like he said i felt like weed was acceptable and he said i just felt like Coke was like a hard drug and a dangerous drug and it would it would be dangerous to move it. And he said, so he just completely stayed away from it, even though
0: he knew he'd make a lot more money. He's like, I just felt like it's just weed. Yeah, you know? yeah, weed's not a big deal. Coke's a lot easier to move as far as smuggling because it's yeah. it's, it's smaller. You can build a compartment, like we used to build hydraulic compartments as I got a little bigger in the game, like false beds, yeah. put, they would, you could have a compartment where you would literally take your credit card and just stick it up in the corner where the windshield meets the visor and then press you know, one button on the radio station and then hold the cruise control down or something like that. And the whole back bed would raise eight inches and the bumper would pop out hydraulically and you could throw in like 100 pounds in there. Or there were other things like you know, the dually pickup trucks that have the big wheel wells yeah, over yeah. the top. You yeah. could stuff like a million in each side of those on a truck. Yeah, Kerry said one time they showed up in an RV
1: And they went to the radio and did something on the radio and pulled something. And he said, this little tiny hatch raised up at the bottom of the RV. He said, tiny. They reached down and they started pulling pounds of weed. It was all attached. Yeah. Like on a string, yep, like it was yep. one pound and here's another pound. And then yeah. he said, and man, he said, they kept going and going and going. And he said, it, it got to the point where he said, I was, I was terrified. So when it got to like two or 300 pounds of it, he said, I was like, this is too much. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was, uh, it was, it's amazing what they can come up with. They even busted a guy like five or 10 years ago for making the compartments. You know, mm. he, he was making s- these super amazing you know, yeah, stealth right. compartments in vehicles, every, any vehicle. Like you could just, you know, you touch this and touch this and pop up and you could put yeah. a couple pounds. And he was trying to say that, you know, he went to, I think he went to trial saying, how am I supposed to know what these guys are exactly. bringing in yeah, cars? He, like yeah. he probably got out of it. Yeah, I think he got a couple of years, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. then he had he, yeah, he yeah.
0: had some knowledge then of what was going on yeah. then.
1: Well, yeah, I guess maybe, you know, while well, in the feds. Have, he, could
0: have, he could have claimed plausible deniability, so where he said he had no clue, but they had a wire or something, obviously. Yeah,
1: in, a fed, in the feds, you just need one or two guys to get on the stand and say, yeah. ah, he knew.
0: That sucks. And I you know, know,
1: the jury's like, eh, he'll probably won't get any time at all. And then they find him guilty and he
0: goes away for five years. They're like, oh my God, I thought he'd get probation. You know, as high up as I was in the business, I never really completely understood that all you need is two people to say he did that. That's yeah. the only evidence you knew. And I never, I always was like, they really need a wire or like a buy or They're something not even to like be the drugs. Yeah, that that's what's scary. Yeah, that's why it's 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 terrifying like i have
1: guys that reach out to me and ask me you know they'll hit me up and be like talk about you know hey bro like contact me you're like i'll i'll pay you if you'll just talk to me like basically talk to them about a scam help them run a scam help them and i'm like why well, you, you you don't understand that like i can't be involved in something like that and then they'll go nah bro i would never say anything first of all i don't believe that but let's say you didn't say anything it doesn't matter i'm on your phone you can see transactions there will be times when our phones are near each other. There will be times when you flew down here. There will be times like, don't you understand that I'm a convicted felon of fraud? They'll just add my name to the indictment. I can't even get on the stand and say, this is what happened. Because as soon as I get on the stand, they'll say, Mr. Cox, how many frauds have you been convicted of? And, and the jury's going to be like, oh, come on. This guy has been convicted of 30 different frauds. He's been doing this on and off his whole life. Oh, he's involved. Like, you're just done. Yeah, you're done. The feds are, it's horrible in the feds. Like, you just can't beat them. I always say that, look, if you're guilty, that's it, you're done. And if you're not guilty, you got about an 80% chance of being found guilty. There you go. So, um, but anyway, I was going to say you're, so you get out of college. So you get out of college, you, you, you dropped selling weed. You went and got a job as a as an accountant and you just became an accountant and and, and now you're here, right? So. Nah, that's
0: not, uh, not that easy. Never got a job. <laughs> I got out of college. I tried to make a resume in the in the campus library. I put the floppy disk in the computer. I couldn't figure out how to get the resume to save on the floppy disk. I couldn't even get to figure out how to get the printer to work. Remember those printers that had like the holes along the side of the paper? You'd like, oh, yeah. it, I don't even remember what those were called from IBM. Yeah, yeah. But I, I couldn't but figure dot that. Matrix. Out. Dot matrix. Dot matrix. So, I, I couldn't even figure out how to get all that work. I was like, you know what? And that was right around the time the movie Office Space came out. Remember the TPS oh, yeah. reports? I love, I love Office Space. <laughs> so, dude, I'm, I'm watching all this stuff, and everything was just telling me I'm not going to be working for anybody right. but myself. So, I got out of college. I still had, I was a little scared with that DEA heat. It was like, that was a wake up call, right? Like, don't yeah. be stupid. So, I told myself, I'm going to graduate with a clean record. and I'm going to move an hour and a half south of the border where there's less heat and nobody knows me. And I moved into a small little town called Saratoga Springs, New York. And I set up a legitimate business there, building natural swimming pools, waterfalls, ponds. And uh, that was my front. And I told myself, I'm going to come to this town. I'm not going to talk to anybody about anything illicit. And I'm not going to distribute any drugs in this town whatsoever. All my business will be out of state or at least three hours away. The closest place I'll be working is New York City. Did you did you have any experience at all in and uh,
1: putting in, uh, um, well, you're, I'm pretty are Fountain, they're, they're not yeah, pools, well, right? Yeah. But they're they're, all, but there there like,
0: were some few like swimming ponds that I had done too, 30 foot deep. And then I did a larger one. There was a few acres. So they were all different sizes. But uh, most of them were backyard koi ponds, like anywhere from 10 feet up to 30 feet wide. Okay. So I, I took some seminars and training on that. But I'm pretty handy as a kid. I used to do a lot of little construction stuff. but. So that was a good front for me. And I made decent money, right? I probably made close to six figures in a summer being 21, 22, which was... That's good money back then. Yeah. So I did that. But at night when I was done with that is when I would take care of my cannabis business. And that's where I would accept deliveries from the Canadian border that would come down to one of my stash houses. And then I would, from there, package it up into different size loads and deliver it south. Did you... Did, were you like running your profit through that company or No, that's one thing I never did is I never co mingled funds. Right. So, you know, I didn't have I wasn't making a my books were only showing what I made, whether okay. it was eighty grand, ninety, whatever it was on the, the waterfall business. Did you have people working for you or was No, uh, it-, it was it was seasonal. I would like sub people out that would come in, an excavator. I'd have three or four guys moving dirt and rocks, but I didn't have full time crew, staff. Okay um so what so how it it, you're saying it gradually just got larger and larger i mean both businesses got the pond business got a little larger and the uh the cannabis became significantly larger i was good at what i did i i followed through i was always, always delivered on time right if i got a shitty load i wouldn't then sell it i would remediate it, whether it meant unpackaging it all and drying it out or making it weighed properly or removing any of the sticks or stems or seeds, anything. I just made sure my customers were always happy and my suppliers were happy by me paying on time. And I always kinda put myself last. I was a simple dude in the beginning, bro. I had a mattress and a car. Like it was very simple. Eat, sleep, work. So All right. So, I mean, but at this point, this isn't like you're,
1: you're, you're bumping into somebody in the hallway and giving them a a dime bag. Like at this point you got, you're showing up someplace with, you know, multiple, you know, whatever, five, 10 pounds of weed, you know, in in your trunk and handing it off. I mean, this was like,
0: yeah, I was doing at this point I by age 21, I became a millionaire between age 21 and 22 is when I made my first million. And I said, I think that's when I bought a new car. I was like I had a pond customer or something that had a dealership and, I bought it all legitimately, but I had the money to do it. And I felt confident. where, like, okay, I can kind of show off a little bit. It was nothing. It was a GMC Sierra. It was nothing fancy, but to me, it was ex- it was nice because I was driving a fifteen year old Pontiac Bonneville right. with quarter million in the trunk. You know. Uh, so I I wrote a story for this guy named Devaroli,
1: and Devaroli hat was as a matter of fact. Did you see the movie War Dogs?
0: Yeah, a long time ago. Remind, but I don't even remember where the. I don't remember. War Dogs
1: but. was, it was these two kids from Miami who started selling weapons to the U.S. government for the Afghan security forces. Oh, okay. You know, I they were, see that. Yeah. So, and uh, Jonah Hill plays Deveroli. Okay. I was locked okay. up with Deveroli. I wrote his memoir. Oh. But what's so funny about him is literally he had four or five million dollars in the bank. He was living in this shitty apartment driving a 15, 10 or 15-year-old Mercedes and it was like, and, and I'm sitting there going, well, when did you buy another car? He's like, you know, I, he said, I honestly didn't spend any money until after he got indicted. Like, I mean, if you watch the movie, it's, it's yeah. they changed a bunch of stuff. But I mean, he just, you know, to him, the thrill and what he enjoyed was making money. And, and he wasn't, he didn't live lavishly. And he didn't, you know, and, and mm-hmm. it, when I compare myself to someone like, you know, like that, like, I don't think I lived lavishly too, but I had a brand new car. Yeah. You know what I mean? But some guys are just like, I don't know. I don't know if that it's that. Um, I want to say that uh, my mom used to call it um, uh, depression mentality where you always kind of feel like you're broke, like you don't spend money, you save money, you that's what you do, like you don't want to spend any money. Yeah.
0: I spent money on, on experiences, just not things. I didn't want any attention on me. I didn't want anybody to be talking about me. Like he has a nice car. He's doing this. So for me, it was always about, like I said, hotel girls, good restaurants. And that was kind of, my life was based on really experiences, experiences and working hard. And, uh, so what were you doing? Fuck, dude, I worked. That's it. I worked. I was a slave. Like if I had to get a delivery at 2 a.m. coming out of the border, I would wait. If they say it's going to be there at 9 o'clock and they're like, oh, it's late, I would stay up till 2 a.m., 2.30. I would sit in a freaking parking lot in my Bonneville and just wait until the truck comes. And then I'd make eye contact with the truck. And then if I didn't think the truck was being followed, then I'd have it followed me to an undisclosed location. Because I would always, anytime trucks come from the border, I wouldn't tell them exactly where to go because I wouldn't want them to bring any heat there. I'd have them come, then I'd feel it out. If I liked the situation, then I'd bring them to a place to unload the merchandise.
1: And, th- and this is, and this is all, these are all hidden compartments.
0: Oh, uh, it depends on what type of trucks. I mean, it depends on what type of, and what year we're talking about. I've, I ran everything from 18 wheelers to pickup trucks, to trailers, um, to, yeah, that's about it. But the guys that were bringing it to me, bring it all different ways, whether it's speedboats, uh, trains, right. 18 wheelers, a few times a helicopter drop. That was over in Washington. Um, there's all there's so many different like ways to get stuff over the border, and <clears throat> it's also you can just know somebody. What if right. you know a what if you know a the border patrol guy? It's right. like yeah, now's a good time to come through. Nice. Um, I was gonna,
1: um I, I read an article one time where th- they were they'd Mexican the Mexicans had a manufacturing plant that were building telephone poles. You know those big like they're like like 10, 15 feet round, right? They're concrete, but they're hollow in the center. And they packed it full of like Coke or meth or whatever it was. And they put them on these, these 18 wheelers and had the highway patrol. Actually, they came from Mexico. The highway patrol like would block of the U S blocks off the road and would, and you know, had them uh escorted them all the way into where they were to the construction company that was supposed to use them and then they drop them off and then that night and it's just like it was like two or three poles at a time and anyway they end up getting busted but yeah it was it was it's uh it's amazing how ingenuitive they that smugglers can get with moving that stuff
0: yeah it's an art form i mean if there's money to be made they're gonna figure out a way there's right always there's always there's sometimes when loads would come down, and they'll send a smaller load to have it get busted to have all the attention on that load. While they bring the main load in, right? And they could even let's say they have one of their guys that gets busted. And they'll be like, "Hey, yeah, work for them. Give them some information." Right. And you give them information about the smaller load. Yeah, you yeah. Take that one down. Boom. It's just a distraction.
1: Well, it's like the the cartel where they 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 shoot people through the uh, the ports of entry you know they sh- send five of them in there and then they they tip off there's something in this car they grab that car and the other people just go right through there you go you know it's just distraction or whatever yeah. you want to call it um
0: sleight of hand uh i was going to say it's always exciting though when the package arrives safely right you know that's kind of the rush that's what you go back for too it's not only the money it's that feeling it's like you can't really get that at a desk job yeah you can't I mean, <laughs> I guess it depends what you're looking for, but that, uh, you know, I it's, it's fulfilling. It's it's because it's something that only you know. It's like, it's your secret. Nobody else knows that you just did like, you just did a million dollar deal and you're here now, you did a million dollar deal, you know, an hour ago and now you're here eating oysters with them.
1: Now, listen, I feel like I would be terrified. And, 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 I, and, and what's so funny is like what I did, people were like, are you insane? Like you walked in the bank, gave them fake documents, signed this stuff got a check and you weren't worried at all. But I wasn't worried because I knew what the bank was doing. You know, I knew, I knew how it worked. I knew what the underwriting was. I yeah. knew what, what all the security, uh, um, all the security measures. So I felt confident. So to me, like meeting some guy in the parking lot, you know, and unloading, you know, 200 pounds of, of drugs to me, I would be I'd be waiting for the cop. I would be waiting for the helicopters to land. I would be, you know, because there's so many people, there one, there's so much law enforcement that is that is focused on stopping it and there's so many people involved in all of the transaction. Anybody down the line could could have been arrested, flipped, you know, and then they just followed all the way back to the
0: yeah. back to you. Yeah, you got to have I would good have been terrified. You have to have good gut instincts to really play that game. There's so many times where I've had close calls when I was back in the day where Certain people would want to meet me and I just, just, just the last them. minute I would just be like, no, I can't. All right. You know, it was the right decision. Not so many times. I should say there were a couple of times, you know, where I just knew I shouldn't meet that person. I know they have heat. You can tell by their demeanor and how they're acting on the phone. Not always, Something's but if you're, if you're partying hard, if you're doing drugs and getting hammered all the time, you're not going to be as perceptive to potential threats. So most of my partying happened in college and high school, college, and a little bit after that. And then I kind of cut back on all that stuff. It was only rare occasions. I was really focused on my business and basically just being aware of everybody around me and who could be a snitch and who's fucked up. And I was pretty good at it until,
1: (laughs) until the end. No, I was going to say, um, yeah, intuition. Like I, I, I'm a huge believer in intuition like, sometimes I'll talk to somebody, I can just feel something, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know the person's nice and everything, and you're like, something's not right, or you're like, yeah, the guy's nice and everything, but the truth is, this guy can't stand me. You just know it, and everybody's like, well, what do you mean? I'm like, I could feel it. What do you mean you could feel it? He was cool, he was nice, we were joking, you were thinking, man eh, that guy despises me, I promise you. And later on, of course, it comes out like, yeah, that guy is talking shit, he can't stand you, yeah. or, or even if it's like, you know, you're dating a chick, and- she comes home and everything's fine and just like normal but something's wrong yeah, and you, know. you find out two weeks later she's you know banging her her ex-boyfriend and you're like fuck I knew it I felt it couldn't you know every time listen every time I've ever been caught had every time I've ever had a girlfriend start accusing me of cheating I was you know and and i used to always go, you're crazy you're crazy the truth is is intuition's a motherfucker like yeah. you just know and and i didn't do anything different
0: yeah. nothing changed there's like this signal I was, it goes from gut to heart to brain right a lot of people think it goes the other way around like brain heart gut but it's, you just everything st- everything starts in the gut that's where all your sensations start and then it moves up from there and and that's you have to be you have to always follow your gut right what what were you were you dating anybody at this point like were you depends on which years i always had from age 25 up till 30 i had a few steady girlfriends one a couple that lived with me two years had a two-year relationship and another two-year relationship but they didn't really understand they didn't know what i did they knew i had money but they didn't know the volume of money i had because i never kept it all in one place it was all over like the there was a time where i had one girlfriend where she was going we just had a rough time it was just she was on a lot of meds i I didn't know this at the time but she was taking i don't know adderall trazodone xanax all these different things uppers downers lefters writers whatever and i'm like i'm in manhattan she's like we need to get home now we need to get home now It's, it's like midnight i was in doing a deal in brooklyn and she's in manhattan waiting for me to pick her up and the deal was taking longer than i thought and I was waiting on money. I had like over two million in cash on me, and over two million in cash weighs a couple hundred pounds. You know, a bill's a, a bill. Your a bill is like point nine 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 grams. So, granted, it wasn't all twenties, but I have a couple couple hundred pounds of cash on me. Right. And she's like, "We need to get home." And I don't usually like to drive really late night on the road with cash. It's usually like my cutoff time used to be like if I'm with an out of state license plate, I'm not on the road after nine p.m. But if it was in-state, it would be like 10, 11. I don't want to be on the road. And uh, she's like, we need to go home. And I didn't want to go. So I got us a hotel room at the Mandarin Oriental and Columbus Circle. And the bellman comes up. He knew me pretty well there. He's like, can I help you with your luggage? And I'm like, okay. I hand him. I go, here's my film equipment or something. I put it on the bell car. It's 200 pounds of cash plus. We get up to the hotel room. She's like, you're crazy. You're a drug dealer. She was going through something. I'm embarrassed to say. you know, I'm not a bad guy, but she was having an abortion. It wasn't like far into it, but whatever. It's... She told me she was on the birth control and stuff. So that's a whole nother story. I don't wanna get into that, but yeah, she was threatening me. Like I thought she was gonna call the cops or the, the neighbors would have called security the way she was screaming and behaving. right? And I didn't know what to do because if the cops showed up, what am I gonna do with all this cash? And right. I couldn't just carry it out. It was too heavy and I didn't have a bell cart. Right. And, so, and there's no say? window I could throw the money out. Like right. this is all the shit that's going through my head in milliseconds. Uh, so where am I going with this? Did you ask me a question? I'm trying to figure out where I'm with this. <laughs> I was saying, just yeah, are you dating different women? Oh wow, uh, I was dating that girl. Yeah, that's for sure, man. And that uh, was that was a mess. I was dating her, and that was my only girlfriend. I never I never juggled women. I always had yeah. one girlfriend at a time. And uh, and if I didn't have a girlfriend, I had to run with escorts because I was too busy. When I move I worked right. so many hours that I couldn't hold down a girlfriend. And if I'm in a random city, it's like I'd be working until whatever we are in the morning and at the last minute I'd get to my hotel room like I need some company.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say I, when I was I was on the run, I, I dated this chick that was bipolar. And I mean, she would just in the lose it. It's two o'clock in the morning, she's screaming, and I'm like, We're both wanted. Like what are you doing? I mean, I, and I, and I'm no exact, I like literally grabbed stuff, threw it in a bag, ran down the hallway. She would go in the hallway and be like, run, that's all you're good for. Run. And I was just like, Jesus, go run, jump in my car, leave. And then, then of course she comes down, starts calling. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I love you. Please don't leave. I'm sorry. And I, one time she called and I heard the, and she's like, hold, hold on. Who could somebody's at the door. I'm like, yeah, the cops are at the door. There's no doubt. Like she opens it. Sure enough, there's two cops there saying, "Listen, we got some phone calls. What's going on?" Like that. So I know exactly what there you're you saying.
0: Go. How you described is exactly right. the feeling. And
1: That's- had I been there, and the cops showed up at that time in, I don't know what it is now, but it in that time in, um in Charlotte, North Carolina, if they showed up and there was domestic violence, somebody has to go to jail. So I would have had to go. You know, one of us has to go to jail. Like we can't be fingerprinted, bro.
0: Yeah, this
1: is a bad situation. Then she's insane, and who knows what she'll say? Like she, I can't tell you how many times she was like, you know, I make one phone call. It's like,
0: what are you so good? I know, I'm terrified. I know, dude. That's 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 it's not a, healthy. No, and that's that's, <laughs> that's bro, a bad position, bro. <laughs> that's why for me to get out of that relationship, that was an art form in itself, right? Cause you, I had to, it took me six months to get out of it. I had to slowly play out that I was broke. Right. I had to like, like so much shit I had to do. I had to play weak and like a loser. Like you got, like you're better than me. You know, like you can do, you don't need this. It was, it was, it was very delicate
1: what I had to do. And it was, I, I ended up getting this chick an apartment of her own. Like, so she has her own apartment. I'm still getting phone calls at two in the morning. You got to come pick me up. You got, well, if you want me to drive, I can drive. No, 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 no. <laughs> you're not driving. I'll come get you. I
0: yeah, mean, you she's know, a loose that, cannon. that game, bro, if you're breaking the law, y- number one, you can't, have, in my opinion, I would never want to have children if I was breaking the law. Right. That's, why I didn't have ki- that's why I didn't have kids at a young age, just because I was breaking yeah. the law. I wouldn't want to ha- have them be around me. And uh, number two, you got to have a solid girl or none at all. Yeah. You're, that's that's going to wear you down. And what, that's dangerous.
1: The kind of chicks that date guys that they know are drug dealers aren't solid. Like, that, like it's almost impossible to find that chick because most women, the moment they kind of realize like, oh, wow, like I think this guy's a drug dealer or I, whatever it is. I think he's committing fraud. I think this guy's a fucking fraud. Like most chicks are like, look, I don't know what's going on. I, I'm, I'm out of here. Like they have to have a certain mindset to be okay with it. And if they are okay with it, there's something not quite right.
2: Yeah.
1: Like something, you know, there's gonna things are gonna go wrong. Like you can't expect this is this is the kind of chick that's gonna call, gonna scream at two in the morning periodically. Periodically she's maybe she's got a drug problem. Like, like that's not normal behavior to say, eh, my you know, I'm a solid upstanding citizen. Uh, and I do everything right. And oh, my, my boyfriend or my husband happens to be shipping in, you know, 500 kilos of cocaine every month. But you know, he's a nice guy. I mean, we have two kids. It's fine. You know, no, no. Something's up with that chick.
0: Yeah. She's, some, something's bad. It was a good lesson though. Yeah. All my all my fuck-ups have been the greatest lessons. I haven't had to yell since that relationship. <laughs> Believe me, that was, I haven't yelled in 15 years probably. So I'm thankful for that. Now i I don't put myself in those situations. Well, she'll probably contact you after this. No, she doesn't her. even, I don't even know if she's alive, bro. Like her, her, her Facebook profile hasn't changed since 08. Her picture, nothing. Like I took the picture of her in 07, I think. I haven't I've never heard from her. It's been over a decade. Who knows where mm. she is? I have no clue, but that's uh, hopefully she's well. She was actually a good person. The thing is, you start getting doing pharmaceuticals and all these things, they can turn you into a different person. Yeah, like you don't need that stuff. What you need is to go out into nature and just like reset. Like you, you, you whatever. That's um, let's not go there. <laughs>
1: um. So so, how old are you at this point? When, you you. Extract yourself from that relationship. Twenty eight. Twenty eight. You own a house?
0: No, I never. I never owned any houses. I owned a lot of different parcels of raw land because it was low maintenance. I had a really low maintenance life. It was just focused on, you know, in that movie Heat where they say never, yeah, yeah, get involved in anything you can't walk away in sixty seconds, right? And I always remembered that because I remember watching that movie, and I don't know, what that's one of my it? favorite movies. Oh, like that's about. one of the best movies, yeah. bro. So I, I, that's my life. Like right. I could walk away from anything when I almost, when I did get popped, well, that's a whole other story. I, I fled from the feds at a hundred miles an hour. I could have totally been gone, but I came back just because I didn't like, I was already prepared. I could, I could have got passports, everything I needed, but I'm jumping the gun here with that. So what was your question? <laughs> I was just saying like,
1: when you, when you, um, you know, got yourself out of the situation with that chick like him
0: and how old were you at that point like i was 27 28. 27 28 27 28 and i didn't have another girlfriend after that i had i had i had a i had a few different places i had a i had an apartment in soho i had a house in california i had a house in upstate new york and i had a nice girlfriend ish ish down in the city that didn't bother me she's just a good girl right like she was just a nice vietnamese girl that was uh well-educated, worked hard, started with nothing, made her own money, and never asked me any questions. Like, right. literally, I'd never got a... This was before smartphones, so we didn't... There was no texting. It was just like, call me when you're in the city or something like that, and it was just... I, I'd hang out. And it, was, it was therapeutic because I would just hang out. We'd get a bite to eat, and we'd go home, do our thing, and it was just healthy and relaxing, and I enjoyed that, but it wasn't a real girlfriend. So I didn't have it because she probably had her own thing, too. Who knows? We didn't really talk about it, but she was a...
1: So wh- why why... You, you. I mean, if you're doing most of this in in on the on the East Coast, why the uh, house in California?
0: Well, so I was pulling out of Canada for about a decade. That's where I obtained most of my product. Right. But then, starting around 2007 2008, California cannabis started really making its way in volume to the east coast it always made its way to the east coast in the early 2000s like 100 pat hundred pounds at a time 200 somebody bring a thousand whatever but never where it's just saturated the marketplace where it was really competing with my canadian products and my customers are complaining that my prices were too high so i had to go out to california in 08 and really scope out the scene and see what this is all about because i wasn't too familiar with california cannabis and i went out there and i rented a house as just a headquarters stash house to really just sleep, store some money and meet with various people that I would known from my past and really just see what type of inventory and product was out there with the quality. And I spent several weeks out there scoping it out. Um, and that's when I really started, uh, actually my business was starting to break down a little bit because of the California competition. Okay. That was breaking down in 2008. You know, my margins were small, dude. I do a million dollar deal. I only might make 60, 80 grand after all expenses. Yeah. Which is not a ton for the risk. I was
1: going to say that's not, yeah. Yeah. Not for having to go to jail for a 10 year mandatory minimum. And,
0: And I was doing it. Sometimes I would do deals where I'd make even less just to keep the customers happy until I figured out a solution to my problem. And the solution was the market's becoming saturated and people are demanding lower prices. My customers that have been with me for over a decade. Right. So I had to figure things out and that's why I had a place in California.
1: Okay. And so you go down there, you get some connects and you start moving it across, All you, you're moving it all across the country back yeah, to- Yeah, I still
0: have my Canadian operation running. Mind you, I have 14 cell phones at the time. Two of them are PGP encrypted BlackBerries. We have our own server. When I got busted, they brought our BlackBerry down to Washington DC tried to crack it they couldn't even get into it
1: right hold on Do you know what a blackberry is yes okay good yeah he half the things that Mm -hmm. yeah you know
0: so he's like i was still i was in california still running my east coast and canadian operation which was deteriorating in a way Uh, but while i was in california the goal was to find a thousand pounds at a good price But that was really hard depending on what time of year you were in California. I was out there in like uh, 2008, 2009 in the early spring and things were drying up. They didn't have the surplus of cannabis that they have now, 15 years ago. So it was hard for me. I'd have to go to multiple growers. I'd get 50 pounds here, 30 here, 100 here, just to put together an order of 500 pounds. And uh, it was very time-consuming, and I had a, an associate that would help me do that. Um, and I still really wasn't making that much money. I didn't. I didn't know the biggest player out there. I didn't know the top dog grower that was growing. You know, growing thousands and thousands of pounds. So I was just trying to figure it out and most importantly I didn't have good transportation I wasn't familiar with transporting product from the west coast to the east coast my specialty was transporting along the east coast I had a count in every single state between New Orleans and Boston New Orleans Florida Atlanta uh, South Carolina North Carolina uh, Virginia nothing in Delaware don't even know that Uh, What I Pennsylvania New York and Boston so I had accounts and I had drivers. I had five drivers at all times that I could pull from, only like two to three that I used regularly. Uh, and I had tight transportation, really good drivers on the East Coast. But as far as West Coast, that's a huge run. That's yeah. like a 40-hour drive or something. What is, that? I don't even know. It's a couple days. It's a few days to get from, but from New York to Florida, you can make it in a day, 20 hours straight if you, you have to stop. But so how, do you, so how did you get it from there to just I hired I hired uh, I had a, one of my customers Missy Giove. she was a female mountain biker uh, she won several world cups she was one of the fastest at one time in the late 90s and she was a customer of mine that brought product down to New Orleans for a couple years I would confront her like maybe a half million a month and she's like, baby, anytime you need work, let me know, I'll do extra. So I used her as a driver. I figured I'd have her come up to the northern mountains of California and load her trailer because I figured if she got pulled over, the cops wouldn't give her a big deal because mountain, yeah, downhill mountain biking originated in Northern California. Okay. It was really where it was founded and started. So I had her as a driver initially until I solidified a more professional way. And a more professional way was to have a jet fly the cash to California and then a fruit truck to bring the, the product back. So you get an 18-wheeler, it's full of fruit, and then you put all the cannabis in the middle with the crates. right? And that was what I had in the works, but before that was all solidified, I was just kind of cowboying it, taking right. shortcuts, working with this mountain biker. I paid her 60,000 to do the drive. And uh, she did it a few times, and then she ended up subbing the drive out to uh, her massage therapist, which I didn't know about. <laughs> Only paid her 3,000 to drive the trailer. She's probably thrilled
1: to get the 3000.
0: Yeah, Maybe dude. she didn't even know what was in there. Who like, knows? I but need she, to drive my trailer. She, she got pulled over oh. for speeding. And she definitely put didn't the, know what was in there. They put tra- the GPS device right <clears throat> in that trailer. And let her go? Let her go and they delivered it right to my hometown, Saratoga oh. Springs, New York. And, and so what happened is Missy Giovi, the biker, she would fly into New York and jump in the driver's seat of that truck and take over from her massage therapist so I wouldn't know that there was a massage therapist driving across country. Right. I would look like Missy drove the load. And uh, Missy brought me the load one day and I suspected something was fishy. First off, the truck wasn't even loaded right. It was a Ford F-150 rental truck that there was way too much tongue weight on the back. So the trailer was, had the headlights of the truck sitting way up, pointing right. up because it wasn't weighted properly. So right there i was like there's no way this thing made it 3,000 miles without being pulled over and uh i was so tired though because i was at a concert i was down at bonnaroo music festival tripping out just partying too hard and i just wasn't alert and i was i was tired of weed anyways i was like half out of the game i was like i just want out of this business i was going to sell it off to somebody and i didn't like the weed business so i was taking shortcuts by even dealing with her but uh she got the load i i met her in a parking lot and then I had her follow him, actually one of my personal residence, which I rarely did. I usually would bring him somewhere else with so his property or a stash house or something. And But I was just tired and didn't want to deal with anything. So brought her to my house. I opened up the trailer and I just kind of scanned the situation. And I noticed a little wire hanging in the ceiling. And I went up and looked over and it was a battery pack connected to some device with a red dot, red blinking light. And I knew it was a tracking device. And I just put my fingers up to my mouth. I go, don't say a word. Because I didn't know if she had a wire on. I had no clue what the fuck was going right. on. Right. So I, I, brought, I brought her out of the trailer into my house, and I just like loud, told her to leave her phone in my kitchen. I brought her up to one of the bedrooms, and I said, had her open up her shirt, show me she wasn't wearing a wire. She's like, what are you doing? Uh, acting crazy. Yeah, and then right. I looked out my, my front window out of the uh, curtains, and I saw across about 300, 200 yards out of Chevy Impala sitting off in the distance, and I knew that that trailer was being tracked and followed by the feds. Was she wired though? No, no she, just, she didn't she have, didn't she, have she, any idea. She had no clue either. The massage therapist dropped the trailer off to her down the road. Missy had no clue either. So, it, you know what's
1: funny is that, so, you know, I, I, I've written a bunch of stories, right? Like true crime stories. Um, and one, what you just, the, the black box, the wires, the whole thing. you can literally go to that story American narco about those guys. They were shipping in from California I mean from uh, Mexico uh like concrete tiles and in the tiles was this metal box with a red light. I was like, a oh, red, like why would they leave the red, even have the red light on there? He's like, they pulled it out and they like stomped on it and took off running. And you know, just, you know, they just panicked and the, yeah. the feds were, you know, had pictures of them and everything. And they, a couple days later they came and arrested both of them. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's funny. The, uh, you know, the, the, the shipping it across the, the country. Like I, I, I wrote a story about a guy who they would, and I guess this is pretty common, where they they would buy a car at like the car at like the the um, auction, and they just stuff the car, and then they pay a legitimate trucker to load the car on the thing and take the car and drop it off somewhere. Like this legit, like so. If he gets pulled over, he's like, and the cops search it and they find something. He's like, I don't, I didn't know it was on there. I was just. We charge $350 to move cars. Like I got eight cars on this thing. Yeah, You know, so that happens sometimes. And sometimes they'll do it and they'll, you know, they'll put a device in and let it keep going just to figure out. That's, that's like, that's common. Um, But man, bro, stupid mistake, bro. And I had a
0: good run at this point in the game. I had done well over 300 million in sales easily. So well, I I By the time this this truck pulled up with Missy. Right. I was very good at what I did. I was a ghost. Nobody knew I existed. Like there's a lot of big players out there, but usually they have heat on them within two to three years if you're operating at my scale. Right. Like there's a lot of guys that'll have windows where they'll run two, three, four months of the year and they'll do some thousand pound loads and then they'll take off to leave the country for six months and have a nice vacation, come back. But consistently working week after week for a decade plus. At my scale, doesn't really happen unless, uh, especially without a gun, and especially without the feds knowing, right? Because the feds know of all the big stuff going on. It's just certain things they let go and certain things they don't because they like to follow things to just kind of see how everything works.
1: Well, I mean, I've I've ordered stuff before where they came in, investigated. Actually, there's stuff going on. Yeah, like they they actually have a case. Like they probably had a case, and then they just kind of said, eh. And they just kind of go away for a year or so and and kind of just watch and then come back. And even though they've, it's like, well, why didn't they bust them back then? Eh, we had other stuff to do. Or like you said, it was, you know, there was no reason. It wasn't enough to do anything about it right this second. We didn't have everything we really needed for a solid enough ca- case. Yeah. And then they just walk away and let them go for a little bit. And they come back and and, and bust them for, you know, they build a case, build up the case. And now you've got... Five years or two years or three years, and now you're really got some problems because they, in the federal system, is you know ghost dope. You know they don't even have to catch you with the, with the drugs. Um. So I'm here's what I'm wondering is how much how much weight was in the um in the trailer that they got you with? How long had they? Because that sounds like that's just a
0: fluke. Yeah, this was it was just a just small a load. There was only like three hundred pounds in that trailer. It was it was like, the end of the season. Small. Well, back. Okay, so, yeah. Well, I was doing. Right. I needed a thousand pounds in that load, and there was right. only three hundred that came. So that's yeah. That, it was hard to get product that time of year back then. So, when there's co- three, yeah. So I closed the trailer back up, and I told, when I knew she didn't have a wire on, I knew it got pulled over somewhere across country. There's just, I just knew. I just didn't know all the details. So I had her follow me out of there. And I basically picked up my phone. Once I saw, I got a mile from my house. I saw agents in packed in cars lined up. There were about 20 of them in six different cars. And I saw them as I was driving out of the neighborhood. And, uh, did they not know you were leaving or they didn't know, they didn't even know my name. They're just doing an investigation. They're they're, they're literally trying to figure out who's who and where's this load going that we found in the middle of the country driving down the highway. So they're doing their homework. And, uh, I pick up my burner phone I call her I go yep we're not filming today it's really cloudy out because she's like a pro mountain biker and I was a little bit in the film industry right so and then I made it out of my neighborhood and I just saw a flock of them back about a half mile just following and and then and a little bit later I saw there was a plane that was circling above that was a part of their crew too right Um, and when I got a couple stop signs up I split took a left And uh, I just I redlined it, bro. I freaking hammered on it. And uh, I had several cell phones in my cup holders. I started breaking them apart, ripping the batteries out, throwing one piece at a time every quarter mile out the window, redlining it the whole way. Nervous as fuck, not thinking clearly, like, what's the play? What am I going to do? I still got a, a million and a half cash sitting back at the house. I got that load on the road. I got three other loads that are coming to me being delivered within the next three hours. Cause I was out of town for a week. So Missy was the first load and I had two others f- from Canada and then another domestic one coming that day. And I have cell phones beeping everywhere. It's half still at the house. Some are with me. So I'm like, this is like right in the middle of a busy day for me to happen. Right. And I'm like, fuck. Well, you know, and the that- first thing I do is what do I do? I call my stepfather <clears throat> which he knows nothing about my illicit business, but he's always the guy that was there for me as a kid when I had to go to the hospital, right? Just get stitches or whatever. Right. So instinctually, I call him. I go, I need to see you right now. So I he goes, where are you? He goes, I'm at work. What's the problem? I go, don't worry about it. I'll see you. I'll be down there. So I drove a half hour to his work. And the, it got to a red light about a mile later, and I saw a couple DEA guys, a couple cars back, and they were on to me. I was like, oh. Fuck. So, at this point, they obviously ran my license plate. They're running GPS on my personal phone, which I haven't gotten rid of. I kept my personal. And I also have, uh, what was it called? OnStar? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to have the OnStar. I had the OnStar on the car. So, they could have been tracking that by now, too. Who knows? I don't know how fast they were moving. But once I got on the highway, though, I created kind of a clusterfuck of traffic. There was a three-lane highway, and I had two 18-wheelers Uh, one in the far left lane, one in the middle lane, they were side by side. And then I went to the far right, the far left lane and I was running in tandem with them down the highway. And this kind of backed up traffic behind us so nobody could pass for maybe a couple minutes. Right. And once I had a clusterfuck of traffic and I saw the DA was about six, seven, eight cars back, I then creeped up a little bit, got in front of the 18 wheelers and then I punched it doing a hundred. Lost them because they're probably not going to be able to get through that traffic for a good two minutes. And then uh, got off the highway. Hadn't seen him for about 20, 30 minutes. Had a conversation with my stepfather. Go, here's the deal. I'm going to get arrested. There's a few hundred grand in a picnic basket in your basement. Can you do me a favor? Grab that, save it for me and get me an attorney. He's like, what, what are you talking about? Like he has no clue. Like, <laughs> <he's> <laughs> like, he thinks I'm just like, he, you he, put he, him, you put him pools. What are you doing? Yeah, what are you talking about? No clue. And you know, and I'm like, but he kept cool. He didn't even like flinch. Yeah. He was just like, you know, he's he, he's seen probably a lot of shit. He's watched a lot of movies as a kid, <laughs> right? <laughs> so he's just like, okay, so that's it. I went, I'm then I'm leave him. I go, what do I do now? For sixty grand, I can get a passport, get out of the country. I got enough money stashed in other places where I can live comfortably forever, right? And. Or, but I'm on the run then. That's no more life. The, the life I know is done. Well, not that I really had one. I didn't have kids, which is good, right? So right. that was kind of a viable option in a way. But then I'd have to always be, I'd, I'm such a, I would always be watching. I wouldn't want to deal with that shit. So and then I kind of just said, you know what? It's time to go back. I'm going to drive home. So I drove home. And for some reason, I decided to stop at the gas station and fill up with a tank of gas because I just felt like before I go to meet the enemy, I wanted to have a full tank of gas. Right. <laughs> I have no <laughs> Just another, too many movies, right? right? So, and as I'm pumping the gas, they rush up to me down on the ground, down on the fucking ground. I'm like, Jesus Christ, I almost peed my pants. <laughs> I didn't see him coming. I thought I was going to meet him at my house. Right. So, but actually some trooper saw me. There must have had, they must have had, a, they probably had it on the radio everywhere, Look yeah. for this truck, right? So some trooper found me. I found it at a later date. My buddy actually knew the trooper, but uh, brought me back to the house, cuffed me up, had me sit outside my house for about 20 plus agents Swarm my house Asked them to get inside what's in there anybody in there any guns i just said sorry I, I, what's going on i wish i could help you but I, I can't help you if i don't know what's going on all right and that's all i said i need to speak to a lawyer yeah and that shuts them up that shuts quick. them up yeah. yeah and then they were talking to the other driver missy which was running her mouth like crazy i found at a later date like <laughs> fuck dude i was like she was just blaming like not this a good guy. situation right. not a good situation I've heard a lot of stories about what she, she put us in a sticky situation, to be honest. And right. what's tough about it is she's getting a lot of fame for like, cause I, I don't know if she's told the tr- whole truth. Cause she was somewhat of a celebrity back in the day, but for being the fastest in the country as a female right. mountain biker. She got into the hall of fame, but she's really. So instead cu- of saying she,
1: like, I don't know what's going on. She's saying, I've been doing this for six months.
0: I don't know exactly so what thinking. she told them at that moment. I just know she talked. Right. And then I also know she sat down with him a few months later and told on a lot of people. Right, and she didn't get any time. And but I she owed she me was... three hundred grand, and she. Uh, I'm sure she's it's fine. It's fine. Sure she did what good. she did. It, the, 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 the thing, <laughs> Have you yeah. asked her about no, it? Like, dude, is, i never is, saw no her again. I don't even want to go near her because then it could be like she could she, she could witness. put in yeah. a situation where I'm trying to kill her. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't, I'm all, I don't even want to be, I've, she's had some other legal cases with people that are like in relationships with her going on where she's said stuff, domestic disputes that I heard aren't true. I have no clue. It's none of my business, but I stay away. Right. Better okay. that way. She cost me a lot of money, bro. But do you know the way I look at it? If I didn't go down that way, it would have been something else. I had to learn the lesson one way or another. You yeah. learn, you learn a lot when you hit the bottom, you know?
1: Oh yeah. You need to figure out who your friends are. You figure out like- like I was thinking, you're thinking you got get a passport. Yeah, you, you could get a passport, but you could have then lived for the next 15 years and then been picked up by just some coincidence, some guy that knew you is in South America and recognizes you and calls the police and you've built a whole new life and you're like, damn. Like, I, like then you get yanked up and you go to jail for 10 years or 15. Like, you know, the idea that you're gonna just disappear nowadays, man, that's tough. That's
0: tough. Especially with all these facial recognition right. cameras. Right. I mean,
1: even if you have all the right documents, you know, it's just,
0: it just, it, it, you know, like. Plastic hey, surgery. I've
1: had plastic surgery. Oh, multiple. Man. When I was on the run, multiple plastic surgeries. Even when they grabbed me, the, the feds had pictures of me, the old pictures. And they were like, and one guy is behind the lead agent going, I don't think it's him, bro. And, and, you know, he's like, I don't think it's him. He's like, no, nah, it's him. Look at his eyes. It's him. It's him. I you know, I' lost weight. I had a nose job. I had a, a facelift. I had two hair transplants, uh, had my teeth done, bro. I was, I went all out. I'm telling you like, and, and the same thing. It just, you know, the problem is it's always the fly in the ointment. You could do everything right. And somebody else makes a mistake or bumps into you and you're like, damn, I did, I had it all lined up. You can't account for everything, you know? I mean, which is exactly what, you know, what you're saying is like, you know, something would have happened. Like, you know, what if they caught you with, what if they'd been watching you for for 18 months and then said, okay, and then you, and the load they cut you with is a thousand pounds. And then the guy they grab say, man, I've been dropping off I don't know how much is in the truck, but I think it's around probably whatever this is, a thousand pounds. I've been dropping that off twice, uh, you know, uh, every two weeks for the last eighteen months, and they add that up, and your ma- mandatory minimums, twenty years. Yeah. You know,
3: like you, it could be so much worse. Law enforcement often questions him, not because he's suspected of a crime, but because they find him fascinating. He is the most interesting man in the world. I don't typically commit
1: crime, but when I do. It's bank fraud. Stay greedy,
0: my friends. Support the channel. Join Matthew Cox's Patreon. You know I paid them 10 million in gold bars, right?
1: No, this is what I'm, I'm waiting for because I saw that on the other thing where you got locked up and then at, you were locked up almost, what, a year and a half, two years, and then your lawyer comes to you and you like, well, didn't believe and believe that that was even going to be possible.
0: Yeah. yeah, for a while, it was... You know how it works. They just want you to work for them. Yeah. So they wanted me to work for them, and I just couldn't do it. I was like, I, I'd rather die. It's like I, I, play, I, right. I told myself that coming in, I'll die before I do that. Yeah. It's just like I've, because I've, 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 I've faced, I've faced, I faced death as I had a troubled childhood, right. so where I almost jumped. So I was never afraid to die. It was like it was when I was a teenager. it was a time when I stood at the edge, and I was like, I don't want to live this anymore. This life. And that's actually when I decided to sell selling sell, sell weed. I was like, "Fuck it, I'm just gonna make my own money." Right. That's, that's in the book, by the way. I, you know, I, my book, right? You know about the book, right? Yeah, pressure, yeah. Sure, pressure, pressure. Okay. Yeah. Anyway.
1: No, and I will. Put, I mean, we're gonna. I'll put the links in the whole thing. Cool, cool, cool. So.
0: Um, yeah, they wanted me to work for them, and I wouldn't do it. And they, 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 I got bailed out. And you know why I was bailed out? Because they wanted to follow me around. Right see who i know because they knew nothing about me they didn't even know my name when i got arrested and that's now i knew they didn't have a case they what's your name what are you doing here right there i knew they didn't have a case right so um they wanted to follow me around and they did follow me around for a a bit specifically they had there was a 60 day slot where they had like a tight crew on me day and night bro they know what you eat for breakfast just trying to get a good case on me because they didn't have a good case on me. They searched my house illegally that day. They came back and they didn't, because I didn't unload anything from the trailer. When I saw that GPS unit, I didn't unload anything. I told her to get out of here. Right. So there's no probable cause to go to my house, but they went in anyway and found 1.5 mil and some few other pounds of weed. Um, so I went for them. They bailed, I was bailed out, watched me for a year and a half. My lawyer kept pumping me for money, bro. I was into, uh, between him, the investigator, I was in for close to 700 grand for legal fees, bro. And they just want, and I hadn't even got a trial yet. Right. This is like pre pre pre-trial quarter million. Oh, Eric, I'm going to need another hundred grand. It's taking longer than we thought. I'm going to need another 200. And he knew he could do it. Michael Kennedy. He was, he's, he's passed away now, but he, he knew what he was doing. Uh, he knew my life was in his hands and I'm just a young kid, bro. I'm 30. He's a 70 year old. He's done with dealt with the mobsters, the pizza connection. He's done a tons of shit. He, he, knew what he was doing so anyway he wouldn't take cash so i had to get him a check the only way i could get him a check is i had to launder the money right so i rearrested a second time they put me for laundering money to pay my legal fees i wasn't breaking the law or anything else i wasn't dealing anymore i was done i was like i got arrested number one i'm gonna beat this case and i'm done i'm gonna stay right. clean
1: but you're laundering drug money to pay well, i had
0: to pay my lawyer as supposedly i was never convicted of that but they said i was laundering money to pay my lawyer so <laughs> they rearrested me all right this time no bail i'm sitting in there for like county jail sucks dude it's not like federal time where you it's like it's county jail is like you sit in a room all day no sunlight just eat shitty food and i'm in there for I, four four plus months and they every day every week my lawyer's like yeah. they're just It's time to just cooperate. Because my lawyer was against cooperating from day one, Italian, you know, like they don't deal with any clients that cooperate. Yeah, they all say that. (laughs) Uh, that that, Yeah, so uh, he came to me after four months. He's like, he's like, listen, just, he's like, just the goal is to get you out of here right now. He's like, you don't really need to work for him. Just tell him something so you get out. And I'm just like, no, I'm not doing that. Okay. And then eventually he comes to me a few weeks later, a month later, two months later, and he's like, hey, Eric, they know you're a good kid, you can get down with your life, just give them the rest of your money and they'll let you go. And I'm like, I don't even know who. To, how do to attract, can we get it in writing? No, you can't buy your way out of jail, you can't get it in writing. It, you get, what you get is the, um, we'll consider it substantial
1: assistance, we'll consider it. Cooperation. Yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. consider, like it's totally up to them,
0: totally yeah. up to them. So I went out in shackles, I made a deal with them. After a while I was like, listen, yeah, I'll make a deal, I'll give you five million. They wanted like 10 or something, eight, nine. And I said, I'll give you five. And then we agreed on like 5.25 million. They didn't like that number. They were just fucking, one investigator was, he was very good at what he did. He didn't like that number, but we agreed on it. So I went out in shackles, the escorted by dozen DEA ATF with AR-15s into the woods of upstate New York. They had no clue where I was taking them. They didn't know if it was gonna be an ambush or yeah, what. Yeah, that's so they, what they're thinking. They had to be prepared. And I went and, uh, I dug up, actually the first dig, I only dug up two million in gold bars in my mom's backyard and I uh, gave that to them. That two million plus the already two and a half million they had in cash seized from my houses equaled the five million that I agreed to pay. So I was there. But then after that, I paid up. They put me back in jail. I'm told my lawyer, I'm like, listen, I, already, I paid. What am I doing? I, and then we sit down, we have a conversation. I have to, basically my lawyer's like, you have to sit down and tell them what you did, but you don't have to tell them everything. Just can't lie.
2: Right.
0: So, so I sit down, tell them what I did, blah, blah, blah. I did this for 10 years. They already knew it all, anyways, by now. And then uh, at the end of the conversation, like, so how much gold did you buy? How much do you have? And right now I'm thinking, fuck. I told them a lot. And then right. the whole room got tense because they, they want more gold now. I only gave them five mil. I mean, that's, they, want, they want the big thing. And the conversation just stopped. They put me back in jail which I should have been let out in my opinion. i made the deal, we did the deal. Right. So my lawyer kept calling me for the next three weeks, Eric, do you wanna give them anything else? Is there anything else you can do for them? And finally I was just like, fuck it, and I went out. And uh, another day was pouring rain, they took me out of prison. Went another another spot up in the woods in upstate New York, and I dug up another six million in gold bars about three feet down, with shackles on. There's pictures of it if you go online and Google it, but me in handcuffs. My hands are so pale and white from sitting in a cell with no sunlight. Like it's. Well,
1: so had you, you hadn't been sentenced yet, though. No. So you were still in the U.S. Marshals uh, holdover. There you go. Okay, but you're, they're still—they're going to charge you. They're just going to consider it uh, for a reduction and and not give you what you should have gotten, right? Like there so, you—that's know.
0: you my cooperation,
1: right? So you would have gotten the mandatory minimum. Which Would have been what 10 years, right?
0: Well, would it have been 10? no, it would have been five, but they oh. probably would have hit me with 10 to 15 based on so they probably would have put some other charges on me. I sure. only had a one count indictment at that moment,
1: okay? Yeah, okay, so they got like two, two, three hundred, what, 200 pounds, 300 pounds, 300. 300 pounds, yeah. So they got 300 pounds. I, I, I didn't know, I thought that was the, the 10 years, everybody. I wasn't 10 me 10 years is a
0: thousand kilos. Oh, you're
1: right, because okay, Carrie got caught with like 1100 um well he got caught with 1100 pounds i think or 2200 pounds i forget anyway it was a lot yeah so okay that's why he got 10 his was his and this other guy they were that was 10 um so so you but you still got sentenced
0: eventually yeah after my lawyer's like all right they're gonna get after i paid now they have close to 12 million of my between cash and gold then they finally let me out my lawyers like just sit tight. We'll push off the sending as long as possible till people. So it doesn't look like you bought your way out of jail. I just sit tight and I ended up getting sentenced down like a year later plus. And, uh, I ended up doing two years, 30, 30 months, but I got the good time and stuff. And some other things I put in the book, how I, I got out. I only ended up doing like 22 something months, 20 months. And, um, Basically, I paid all that money so I wouldn't have to work for them. And someday I'm gonna be honest with you. There's days, and I, I I think about, did I do the right? Would they have all done it for me? I no. I paid motherfucking close to twelve million so I wouldn't tell on people I'll never see again that really have nothing going on in their lives. Yeah. That probably, if I told them, they probably wouldn't even hurt them. I'm so like I wrestle with that sometimes. To be honest with you, I really do because. Cause that was expensive for me. And, uh,
1: and those so people just, are going to get busted anyway. But listen, everybody you were dealing with has probably been busted and gone to prison. anyway. you know what? That's
0: what fucking happened. Yeah. I remember looking in the newspapers, this years past, and I would see oh, this guy, Holy shit. Indicted this guy. Indicted. That wasn't, I, I'm sorry. I, I was going to say, I,
1: I wrote a story for about a guy that got, he got arrested. Didn't tell on the other two guys. For because they got him for one crime, they the cop the FBI knew these two guys had helped him with this another robbery, so he didn't say anything. He said, "I I you know, I I know I know not to say anything, so I just took the whatever it was eleven or twelve years and just took it." And I was like, "You're a fucking idiot." He said, "Yeah, well, you know what happened? They end up busting these guys for for that crime without his help. These guys immediately turn on him. They reindict the guy in prison who didn't talk." They reindicted him. He got something like thirteen more years, and he's now doing like twenty-four years in, in federal prison for not cooperating against the two guys that immediately cooperated against him. And that, and that just happens when, like, people they think that that code, you know, you don't do it,
0: and you don't, you know, God, man, I've seen it go bad so many times. The, the main guy I didn't want to tell on was the guy that actually told that I had the gold, man. That was a freaking really hard pill to swallow, bro. So. So I'm not going to even get into names. I don't want to do any of that. But like, it was just
1: right. But so, so you didn't tell them about. The, they already did. They just knew about the gold. Somebody
0: else had told them about it.
1: Oh, Okay. Okay. Yeah. I thought. I thought you just said yeah. went and decided. Here, I'll go do it. But No, but, they, knew. but
0: the, they they knew I had gold. They didn't know exactly how much, but they they figured it all out eventually. Because I,
2: bro, I was just nuts. I ta- I
0: I was very good at not talking when I was in the game for years. But all it takes is one time yeah, yeah one guy I just told yeah I got these gold bars check them out you know like it just it's like I fucked myself honestly uh, I was a young kid I was a young kid with too much money so how old were you when you got out like 35 30 34 maybe 34 35 and how long ago was that 2014 so did you write your book while you were locked up? No, no. I was working on this other application. I was, it was like a piece of software that helps you surround yourself with like-minded people. I was doing the wireframe for that and the design and, uh, kept, kept me occupied. And then when I got out of prison, you know, I had five years supervised release. And during that time I started writing the book and, uh, just finished the book. Uh, it just came out a year ago. Uh, it's gone pretty good. I, I got distracted though. Like I had an f- opportunity to be interviewed by Rolling Stone, and I didn't even take the interview because I was in this field. I invested in a cannabis. I was involved in a cannabis farm in New York State. There's no cell service there during the day, and I, I didn't get back home till the day later. And it's like when you don't jump on something like that, it's like you lose it. And I lost the momentum with the book release in, a, in some manners, but whatever. I'm happy. I got a good book. It worked hard, but I could have pushed it a little hard. I didn't take every interview that came my way. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Like, for example, uh, I don't know, a month or two ago, somebody from VH1 reached out to a publicist that I was working with and said, hey, we want to get him on our VH1 crime series show. Yeah, uh,
1: my true crime story.
0: Oh, it's my true, okay. Yeah. And I didn't follow through with that because I didn't know if it would be a good fit for me. Like, because I'm thinking if I do that, might it prevent me from getting a better deal? Some maybe a deal with like a Netflix or something down the road. I don't know. It's torn because if once the are story's working already
1: working on it, getting something, or nah, you nah, just nah. waiting for it to fall out of the sky? Fuck man, because I, Cause I waited mind. a couple of years for it to fall out of the sky and just it just doesn't happen. No, it's not that it doesn't happen, it's that you 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 do you get contact. You've already, I know you've already had. You've already had producers contact you, right? want to talk to you and you take the meeting and they're going to talk to Jim and they're going to get their team together. You know how many times I've heard, I'm going to bring this back to my team? I swear to God, I want to jump through the fucking screen every time I hear it. They're like, okay, well, I'm glad we had a good talk and I've read your synopsis and I read this. And so I'm going to bring this to my team. (laughs) Okay, well, that's a kiss of
0: death. So what's your advice? Should I take the VH1 thing? Just do it?
1: Why not do it? Like, 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 to me, listen... I did it. Oh, okay. Listen, here's my only, my only problem with the VH1 thing that I did. You know, obviously, listen, they can't tell. First of all, you're talking about an hour program. You're looking at them doing maybe 41 minutes on your, on you. My problem was, you know, it, it's, 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 it's uh, what was, what's the chick's name? Mickey or Nikki, somebody, Nikki, somebody who does the narration for it it's all hype it's all flash it's about redemption it's all so it's a cutesy little program it's not a big deal but you don't know who's going to see that like your story could be done by a polished director and production company and it could be phenomenal it could be amazing this is a silly little uh, a silly little rendition that's 40 minutes long you're maybe 15 or 20 minutes of it. Most of it's narration was some reenactments. It's silly. My only real problem with it was, they put so much makeup on me, it was I, was, I was infuriated. You couldn't tell them to not put it on you? I should because they kept saying, no, it's gonna look good. And, you know, I know it looks like a lot now, but on camera, it looks perfect. I, I, and you know, I'm sitting there thinking, eh, they're professionals. It doesn't look good on camera. It looks horrible. So, you know, but listen, they they, they fly out. They'll give you, you know, whatever, a few thousand dollars, um, or whatever you negotiate. You know, I'll tell you, you know, what I got. You know, which probably wasn't much, but yeah. you know, but they also, you know, they also interviewed my girlfriend and another friend, and you know, we got to go to New York and hang out for a few days, and it was cool. Um, but somebody could see that. Somebody at Netflix or one of these production companies sees that and goes. Listen, you know, I saw that and they, they'll know, look, it's hokey. Like they're going to be like, look, you've got a story here. They can't do your story justice in 40 minutes. You know it and I know it. They'll cut it down to just a couple little hype events. But if somebody comes in and says, hey, your, your story's a three-part series of an hour. This, this is a three-hour or four-part series on Netflix. Then they come in and they do a real a real documentary on it. Maybe that documentary ends up doing well. And the next thing you know, you've got Warner Brothers coming in saying, we want to do a movie or we want to do a series. We think you've got a whole series. Yeah, You're in your right. early 20s doing all this with DEA watching you and guys getting busted around you like this could be not breaking bad, but something along those lines, you know yeah. So you know to me, it's like you know, oh, I don't want to get overexposed like what? Like Nike? Like I mean, what do you mean over? Yeah,
0: like, Somebody told me that. That was the publicist that I was working. She mentioned that, so I kind of took it to heart. But whatever. Maybe I'll I'll follow through when I get out. When I get out of this interview, I'll give a little jingling and call yeah, them up I, see I, if they. Um, yeah, I was gonna say definitely.
1: Um, I was gonna say, yeah. I, um, another thing, and and you know, he'll keep all it. Like this is another thing that you you might want to think about. Just you know, uh. Is that like you have a book? Do you have a synopsis
0: of the book? Like a very The website short. really has it all. What a the synopsis. synopsis? Yeah, it's on the website. How
1: many words is it? Do you know? Like uh, man, under a thousand. Under a thousand words. Oh, okay, so it's like a summary. Um, I was gonna say because a lot of times you can pitch. Um, if you have like a synopsis, is better to pit like a like let's say eight. 800 word, sorry, 8,000 to 10,000 word synopsis of your story is probably better than because than handing someone the book. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Because they hand it because like, people are like they're like, man, you, you know how many books I get handed? Like I can't be reading. Exactly. You know that's this is ten or twelve hours. I'm burnt
0: out though. I can't write anything. Maybe we'll talk about that off camera. I'm burnt out. I'm I'm all. I can't even. I can't even read my book for an audiobook I don't want the words will make me nauseous. I just spent too much time on it. I'm all done. Like I'm not. Maybe I'll revisit doing an audiobook in a year or something. Right. The book launch I could have done a little better with, but. Good news is the story's done. So now I'm on to new stuff. You know, it's like that phase of my life, that whole 20 year stretch of selling grass and going to prison and supervised release and writing the book. It's like done. Story's done. So, where, where, first, my question is what, what security level did you go to? Uh, well, I was moved around. I was, I tested out everything. I was in MDC, Brooklyn for like a month. Uh, few jails but I ended up in a low right. at MC Devin's, right because nonviolent offenders just can not yeah, yeah. they're not gonna do anything to me so I was like in a camp basically MC Devin's, you know that I have that satellite camp there so it's basically just a big room big warehouse with a bunch of bunk beds right that's it um so you got out did you have any go in any halfway house no that's nice you straight know? out to five years supervised release they yeah. didn't cut me loose though did you go into a halfway house yeah I wish I had I mean
1: Honestly, like if I had money set aside where I was getting out to something, I would have just stayed in prison. I would have yeah. stayed in the low because the halfway house was worse than being in the low. Yeah. But I needed to go because I needed to save up money. I didn't have any money, so I needed that seven months. You know, mm-hmm. like uh, it's not like anybody packed up my clothes and stuck them in, in boxes waiting for me. Like you know, my stuff was gone. I started with yeah. nothing. Yeah. Uh,
0: so what? Well, what are you doing now? Um, right now, I've. Well I partnered up on a cannabis farm in New York State, but the market's just so flooded, so I want to get out of that immediately. That's my top priority is to try to get out of that business. And then uh, I want to get into building really high-end retreats, infrared saunas, infrared saunas, cold plunges, outdoor gyms, fire to table food, uh, you know copper grounding beds. Uh, really natural surroundings and environments. So I want to build a place where people can go and reset and recharge. My premise is basically that we plug our phones into charge. At the end of the day, we plug our cars into charge, but the human body isn't being plugged into dwellings that charge us. So I want to build these spaces where you can go and recharge for adults only. So that's really my passion, what I'm working on. So I have to get out of the cannabis first, and then I'm going to move into that.
1: Okay. Well, what happened to your... Um to the the fountains and oh uh, I haven't done that in years I'll yeah. build that at the
0: retreat I, I haven't that was a little kid project I, I built some nice ponds on my property though I have some uh, one like 20 foot uh, spring fed 20 feet deep spring fed koi ponds I swim in and stuff with the fish they're huge they're like this they're they're, they're big and they, they bow, they'll outlive me some of those koi can live up to 100 years old
1: oh um, wh- where are you living
0: uh, I have a place in upstate New York.
1: You didn't uh, drive here from New York. No,
0: but I've, I spend part of the winter down here because I have a small little network down here where I'm s- helping with like, that's basically going to help me with the retreats. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, is there anything we didn't get to? Like, Well, the title of the book's Pressure, a memoir by Eric Canory. If anybody buys it and likes it, please DM me if there's anything that they like about it. Um, leave a if, leave a, a know, review. Oh, I love reviews. If I can get those to, uh, if anybody knows anybody in the film industry that's really passionate and good at what they do, I'll give a finder's fee to somebody that puts me in the right hands with somebody that's that's good at that. Um, and uh, you know, crime doesn't pay. I guess. <laughs> Fuck. <that's laughs> what are the
1: what are the what are the, <laughs> the other shows? The other podcasts that you've done? Like, is that is that their angle of? I, I get a lot of guys that that. I mean, bear with me one more minute. I get a lot of guys that like come on, and they they don't want to tell, they don't want to talk about what got them to prison. They just want to say, you know, so I messed up, and I was I was selling coke, and I was selling this, and I, I, I you know made a mistake, and I got busted, and you know I I I got ten years, I went to prison, but you know, you know I, I changed my life, and I did this, and I did that, and it's like whoa whoa whoa, whoa. wait. like how did you get to prison yeah you know it was just a bad situation and but you know then i went to prison it's like they want to talk about they want their whole story to be about redemption and uh, there's a lot of podcasts out there and a lot of guys like just focus on i'm a changed person i've I've, done doing my it was it was a bad time you know they they do this whole thing and it's like so i i've talked to people who are like they do that and then sometimes i'm like "Yeah, yeah let's go back and they almost like they don't want to talk about like what got them to prison. Mm. And I was wondering like what's it like to be on one of those shows? I
0: I haven't been on one of those shows. And plus I don't I don't really would talk about what I'm like now. I mean prison, you know how prison is it helps you grow, right? It's it's a great time to pause. Somebody should build prison retreats. People would probably pay to go to those. Like I th- a weekend in prison like you go, no cell phone, no outside visitors and just sit in a concrete room for you know, a weekend and you can't talk to anybody. You have to figure your life out. So yeah, many people I, complaining I, out here that they have a tough life. I mean, you don't have a tough life if you're out eating Cheetos, drinking wine every Friday.
1: Listen, he's heard me say the exact <laughs> same thing. Like, you know how good it is out here? Like you've got you've got yeah. cell phones, you've got YouTube, you've got like Netflix, like like you can eat whatever you want. Like you have no, until you've been stripped of everything and the guards are talking to you like you're just a dog and you know, Honestly, you don't know how good it is. Like, yeah. I, I can never get upset. We should be blessed in a way that we had that opportunity to stop us. Oh, I, I think it it alter, it completely, it fundamentally altered like the person I am. Like, I, I'm absolutely not even close to, well, I'm still an arrogant prick, to, mm. but the difference is, is now I kind of know. The difference is now I feel bad for the people that have to deal with me. Where before it was just like, you're lucky to be around me. And now when I'm talking to somebody, I realize, ah, oh, you're kind of being a douchebag. I'm kind of like, I... I step back and and then I'm like, oh man, like I try and kind man. of re, you know, I start to realize, okay, you're being a douche. Like you need to calm down. Like you just stop. And then I kind of, like you said, I kind of reset and say, hey, what's going on? Sorry about that. I, this, I, that. And I, where I never did that before prison. I would have never done that. Yeah. And then in writing too, like I think writing like so helps you lay out a plan.
0: Yeah. For- writing my book was... The bare minimum, it helped me with my childhood. Tra- it was the tr- trauma from there and just process who I am. Because every person that you look at, when you're having a conversation, with them, you have to see the seven-year-old child in them. Because 90% of who we are is programmed between age one and seven. Okay. Yeah. That's so writing that book really helped me understand why I am who I am and where I came from in those years and what the environment I was – exposed to, really created this, you know, you can't, when everybody else was playing t-ball and basketball, I'm sitting here watching Miami Vice at age 12, right? you know, trying to figure out how to not get busted by the feds with this 100 kilos of coke, right? Like, okay. how's he gonna do it? And don't be stupid and start talking, going out to the club with five girls. And this is, I'm like learning all these moves while yeah. the other kids are learning how to get to third base. Yeah. And like, They're playing Atari and you're yeah, trying to, yeah. yeah, yeah. That was just the environment I grew up in. And uh, I don't know if I have regrets, but I, I, I don't know. I, my life, I'm, I'm thankful for what I have, you know, cause it is. If you're stripped naked of everything you have and you feel at least healthy and decent, you're in a good place. Right. Right. You have to like, especially now I'm getting ready to start another company. Like it's not about what I have. It's about who I am. Like I can move and like I'm, I'm strong and healthy where I can handle the pressure that's going to come with running a company because I know what it's like. You need to be able to handle fucking bullshit every day and night. And uh, I've kind of groomed myself to get ready for that again. So yeah,
1: I, I definitely, the, the the childhood thing, like until I went to prison, if somebody asked me like, oh, well, why'd you do all that? I would just say, ah, you know, I needed the money, man. I just needed the money. But then you go to, I went to prison and I started writing, and I started reading books about how to write a memoir, you know, and how to write nonfiction. And then you kind of start having to look back at your life and say, what influenced me to do these things? Because what's what shocked me was that, is that, is that Connor, if Connor needed money, you know what he's not gonna do? He's not gonna go commit fraud. He's not gonna go sell drugs. He's not going to, he's gonna get an extra job. He's gonna get an, like most people, it, they, they just, they don't do it. I, I always say most people will commit a crime in the right circumstances, but most people will take all of the extra steps before they get there. My first thought is fraud. What, I'm broke, I need some money, there's fraud. Like, that's the first thing I think of. How do I get away with committing some fraud so I can get some money? And so I kind of, when I was writing my book, I started looking back and saying, well, what is it in your childhood that made you think that was even an option, a first option? And it's the same thing. Like you said, like, like obviously something in your childhood, you know, was shaped you to say, hey, what are the things that I can do to make money and, and morality, didn't really enter into it. Like that's not really a part of it. It's uh-huh. what do I need to do to make money?
0: It doesn't matter if it's illegal. Most people, most people commit crimes. They're just to what degree. It's like yeah. Well, most people, there's so many people in your neighborhood that don't have a trash service and they'll just take their trash to another public dumpster behind a grocery store and dump their trash. Yeah, that's, that's illegal. That's, yeah. They'll buy an appliance from the store and then use it for a party and then return it 30 days mm-hmm. la- later or something. Say so it was the fact that That's illegal, right? Like oh. th- everybody's breaking crimes. They're committing crimes all the time. I like to think of my crime as the most honest crime you could commit. I like to smoke weed. There's no other place to get it. And, well, there's a lot of places to get it, but I like to pers- smoke weed and just I sold so, it. Just people helping people? Yeah. You're I was just not trying to I help. I'm not, not trying to hurt anybody. All right. And here it is. It's
1: legal now. I was going to say my, my mom used to break – every single day she broke the law because she had all of her medications and she had one of those week-long planners for pills. Mm-hmm. And she popped it open and she would, take, she would take it out of one container and drop it into Monday and put three or four pills in, in a container and close it. You just committed a federal crime. By removing those out of a marked uh, – they have to stay – they have to stay in the uh, in the prescription bottle until you ingest them. If you take them and place them into another bottle, especially if you commingle them, you've committed a federal crime. So every day, she's weak, she's putting them all in there and taking those pills, and that's a far, that's a crime. Like most people, there was that book that was written, uh, a felony a day. Where they talk about all the felonies that people commit on a daily basis and don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I mean, everybody's committing you know some, doing something wrong at some point or cheating on their taxes.
2: Yeah,
0: that's a big one.
1: People are okay with that. Like everybody, almost everybody's okay with cheating in some way on their taxes, just a little bit. Well,
0: even the you know, the the people that busted me cheated. The bottom line, they wouldn't have had me if they followed the law, right? That in that particular case, in the case that I was popped in, if if the the law was followed there, I wouldn't have been pinched in that particular moment. Like they jumped the gun, whatever. They're gonna do it. I have no hard feelings. It is what it is. It's better that I got sooner than later because now I'm young so I can rock and roll in the legit world right so there's a lot of you know those guys in the prison they're in their 60s and 70s it's like when they get out what are they gonna do yeah exactly
1: yeah bummer what a bummer to leave, leave it
0: on alright let's no do we it. don't wanna yeah. leave it like that fuck <laughs> shit if I was 70 getting out of prison <laughs> fuck I'd go to the Mahi Mahi, I'd go to where'd I go Bora Bora I don't know Yeah, just kidding all of you guys get out in
1: your 70s you guys have a good time guys are gonna get out and go walk right into a bank and rob a bank so they can go right back to prison because they're 70 years old and you know what i mean guys i knew were like they're gonna get out at 60 70 nothing have they have nothing yeah that's gotta be tough imagine you don't even know if you have you don't even have like social security like no, you never the, paid in
0: i wish the judges that's one thing i feel like the judges to, in order to become a judge you should have to do a, like a prison time for a month and then the supervise oh, because what what was yeah i got a two-year sentence or whatever but that was eight years of my life that I with, with a pretrial, five years of supervised release, peeing in a cup, like all that, it just prevent. And then on top of it, I'm a felon. So there's certain things I can't do now for the rest of my life. Yeah. Like it's, so, could you imagine if every federal
1: judge, before they took the bench, had to do sixty days in, a, as a normal inmate? You can't say you're a federal judge; you what go in, boom, that's it. Listen, do you know how different the sentencing s- sentences would be and the prison system would be because they would have so much more empathy for inmates? And I'm not saying it should be nice.
0: Yeah, it shouldn't be nice, but they could have. I learned my lesson. If I did a year and then a year of supervised release, like. I wasn't going to go back to breaking the law. Yeah. Me personally, I don't know if that's with everybody oh, yeah. else, but for me personally, Bro, I learned 13, my lesson. Thirteen
1: years? You could have given me a couple of years. I'm good. I got. I got it. I, I. I. got you. Yeah. No, I'm good. Thank you. Thirteen
0: years. I had to do thirteen years. Fuck. Yeah. No. I didn't know you did thirteen. Yeah. Oh. wow. Okay. So
1: I was. I was supposed to do. I, I got over twenty six. Mm-hmm. Twenty six years and four months. But unlike you, I don't have any scruples about ratting out every single person i was ready to cut every single person's throat i could to get out of that fucking prison Mm -hmm. everybody but i was on the run for three years so by the time they caught me everybody had already cooperated Mm -hmm. so when i was ready to fucking tell on everybody it that didn't help me i ended up having to file a 2255 because they asked me to be interviewed by dateline nbc news and american greed and then after i had been locked up a couple years the government asked me to write an ethics and fraud course to help teach mortgage brokers. So I did that. And you know what they said when I said, okay, I did it. They said, I said, you said you'd consider it substantial assistance. And they said, we did consider it and it's not. And so I had to hire a guy. Well, not hire. I had to get a a lawyer in prison who was in prison with me to file a 2255 to get the government to reduce my sentence by seven years. So Um, then I came back to prison and a guy that I knew that was running a Ponzi scheme or had run a Ponzi scheme who was in the middle of cooperating against other people had buried a bunch of gold and money. How much? Um, it turns out it was, well, one, he dug up like six, six million, I think, and given it to them. But he'd, he'd given his soon to be ex wife money, gold. Well, it was gold and silver bars and some cash, but he said it was like $100,000, 150000 And he'd given his brother, he said, he's got maybe 10 or 20,000. And I was like, oh, okay. And and so a couple weeks later, I was ta- maybe a month later, I was talking to my lawyer. I had asked her to send me some transcripts, which she never sent. So I called her to say, hey, are you going to send those? And we were talking and she asked me, anything going on in there? I was like, no, nah, not really. Because I didn't think they would give me anything for saying anything. I was like, no, not really. And she goes, you sure? Nothing you want to talk about? And like, my lawyer never wanted to talk to me. Like I was, it was it was almost weird. I was like, yeah. no, nothing. I went, well, I said, you know what's weird? I said, listen to this. And I told her what happened. And she's let me look into it. She didn't want to look into anything before. Like, wait, she yeah. wouldn't even be my lawyer anymore. And yeah. like, we were done. Yeah. I'd already been sentenced, resentenced. So a week later, I get called by SIS. You know, the CO comes up to me and goes, Cox, you got to go to SIS. I'm like, what? Oh, Okay. So I go to SIS. Like, what's up? They're like, "Come here, sit down." I'm like, "Yeah, what's up?" Hold on, Doc, Talk to this guy. Pick up the phone. Guy says, "Hey, my name is Agent So and So with the Secret Service." And I'm like, "The fuck?" I'm like, well, "What's up?" And he goes, "I understand that you know where money has been hidden by Ron Wilson." And I went, "Oh no, wait a minute." I said, "I, I, I, I do, but it's not a lot of money. It's not millions of dollars. It's a little bit of money, and I want something in writing." So I'm not telling you anything. He's like, well, who's got it? I'm like, I'm not telling you anything. Like, get me something. Talk to my lawyer. So they ended up writing a letter saying, you give us something if somebody's indicted or will we recover money? And I told them I wanted recovered money, any money, that I not wanted my sentence reduced because I didn't think they'd indict this guy. You know, like he's got, he got 19 and a half years.
0: I've never heard of anybody else burying gold. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, he dug it up though. So um I
0: gave it to the feds,
1: gave it to him because, you know, he was trying to mitigate his role, which didn't help. It didn't help him. And he did that all prior. So what ended up happening was he um uh, what happened was they ended up coming back and they gave me something in writing, which was bullshit. It was a we'll consider it. Substantial assistance, which means nothing, but I had something in writing. So I said, okay. I said, look, this is all he told me. He told me his brother has maybe 20, 30 grand in cash. He told me his, his, you know, his ex-wife has like 150,000 in cash, but he's afraid she's going to give it to you guys. Cause she found out he was having an affair when they were married and they were in the middle of a divorce. And I said, that's it, you know, and he was in the middle of cooperating against his other co-defendants. So they were like, okay, so they call in his wife. His wife walks in with $350,000 in cash and gold and everything completely, like he didn't tell me what she had. He told me kind of, but he lied. And then his brother comes in with 150,000, so it's half a million dollars. They reindicted him, and he comes to me and says, oh my, you're not gonna believe this. I've been reindicted." I'm like, no, that's crazy. So uh, he says, I said, uh, what happened? He's like, yeah, they, they got half a million. I'm like half a million. Like I thought she said it was like 30 grand or 20 grand. He's like, nah, I didn't, I didn't think I could trust you. So I didn't tell you the right amount. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, anyway, a couple of days later, he's on a bus. He gets shipped back to South Carolina. He gets six more months. Uh, his ex-wife gets like six months probation. She didn't even have a felony. Neither does his brother. Because they gave the money, you know, yeah. up. So um, so he got six more months and we went to the government and said, hey, you got to reduce my sentence. And they said, ah, it's just not enough. So we had to file another 2255 and got five more years off. And by the time the five year, more years hit, I basically walked out within a year. I walked right out of, out of prison. Yeah. So I was, my out date, my original out date was 2030. I'm supposed to be in prison right now. And so I, but in the, you know, while I was locked up, I started writing guys true crime stories. And, and so I'm in prison as a snitch. Mm. So you can imagine how well that went. Like, wow. I didn't have a lot of friends. Um, in a low. Uh, but yeah, I went to the halfway house and got out. And that's why when you were like, I wouldn't do it, I'd rather die. I was like, so, well, I, I that... have a vastly different, I have a vastly different feeling
0: yeah, about that. yeah, yeah. Well, you were in the drug game. No, I was the drug games a lot different. You know what I'm saying? It's like all these guys are rolling
1: over on each other
0: that I've learned that after I gave up the right. paid all the money. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't realize, I didn't know, like I went into the game with a certain rule like that. I just, that's, I just, and then after I went through all this and I've gotten to this age where I'm at now, I see, and my lawyer even said, it, he goes, don't ever get back into the game. Everybody's a double agent. Yeah, uh, Absolutely. And I said, there you go. I said, fine. So. This is
1: like, It's like 85% or 87% or 80 that that people cooperate. Yeah. That, that That's drugs. Like, it's even white-collar crimes, it's even higher. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, one of the lowest cooperation rates is um, sex offenders. But they don't have anybody to cooperate. Like, this is just some guy on a computer at home. Yeah. He doesn't even have an option. And even if he did, they're not going to give him anything. You know they're going to screw yeah. him over. So. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, uh, yeah, bro. It's, it's, it's a rough situation going into prison, but I definitely, let's
0: leave it on a good note. Cause I, my brother, I, um, <laughs> I, I, left it, I left with the old guys, so let's leave it on a good note. It's good to be free. It's good to be free and make it legally. Yeah. It's so easy to make it legally though. If I, if I had just got a. Right out of high school and start building houses like I wanted to with a freaking hammer and nail and start at the bottom, I'd have made millions. I would have made more. I would have made way more. That's why I'm going back into construction, build these retreats and stuff. So that's my play.
1: Yeah. Well, that's what, yeah, that's what I say. The amount of money I spent on the run and in prison, if I'd actually focused on something legitimate, you know, I'm a hard worker. You know, I work 60, 70 hours a week. Like I'm always hustling. So I'm going to make something work thank you for coming on the program i appreciate it well, thank you for having me all right and i'm gonna leave we're gonna leave a a, a link to is it on amazon your book
0: my book's on amazon okay yep.
1: we'll leave the amazon link um to eric's book uh i uh um appreciate him coming by i appreciate you guys watching do me a favor leave me a comment in the comment section subscribe share the video do all the stuff and check out my check out the books that i wrote and the trailers see you
4: using forgeries and bogus identities matthew b cox one of the most ingenious con men in history built america's biggest banks out of millions despite numerous encounters with bank security state and federal authorities cox narrowly and quite luckily Avoided capture for years. Eventually, he topped the U.S. Secret Service's Most Wanted list and led the U.S. Marshals, FBI, and Secret Service on a three-year chase while jet-setting around the world with his attractive female accomplices. Cox has been declared one of the most prolific mortgage fraud con artists of all time by CNBC's American Greed. Bloomberg Businessweek called him the mortgage industry's worst nightmare, while Dateline NBC described Cox as a gifted forger and silver-tongued liar. Playboy magazine proclaimed his scam was real estate fraud, and he was the best. Shark in the Housing Pool is Cox's exhilarating first-person account of his stranger-than-fiction story. Available now on Amazon and Audible.
2: Bent is the story of John J. Boziak's phenomenal life of crime. Inked from head to toe, with an addiction to strippers and fast Cadillacs, Boziak was not your typical computer geek. He was, however, one of the most cunning scammers, counterfeiters, identity thieves, and escape artists alive. And a major thorn in the side of the U.S. Secret Service as they fought a war on cybercrime. With a savant-like ability to circumvent banking security and stay one step ahead of law enforcement, Boziak made millions of dollars in the international cyber underworld with the help of the Chinese and the Russians. Then, leaving nothing but a John Doe warrant and a cleaned out bank account in his wake, he vanished. Boziak's stranger than fiction tale of ingenious scams and impossible escapes, of brazen run-ins with the law and secret desires to straighten out and settle down, makes his story a true crime con game that will keep you guessing. Bent, how a homeless teen became one of the cybercrime industry's most prolific counterfeiters. Available now on Amazon and Audible.
3: Buried by the U.S. government and ignored by the national media, this is the story they don't want you to know. When Frank Amadeo met with President George W. Bush at the White House to discuss NATO operations in Afghanistan, No one knew that he'd already embezzled nearly $200 million from the federal government, money he intended to use to bankroll his plan to take over the world. From Amadeo's global headquarters in the shadow of Florida's Disney World, with a nearly inexhaustible supply of the Internal Revenue Services funds, Amadeo acquired multiple businesses, amassing a mega conglomerate. Driven by his delusions of world conquest, he negotiated the purchase of a squadron of American fighter jets and the controlling interest in a former Soviet ICBM factory. He began working to build the largest private militia on the planet, over one million Africans strong. Simultaneously, Amadeo hired an international black ops force to orchestrate a coup in the Congo while plotting to take over several small Eastern European countries. The most disturbing part of it all is... Had the U.S. government not thwarted his plans, he might have just pulled it off. It's insanity. The bizarre true story of a bipolar megalomaniac's insane plan for total world domination.
4: Available now on Amazon and Audible. Pierre Rossini in the 1990s was a 20-something-year-old Los Angeles-based drug trafficker of ecstasy and ice. He and his associates drove luxury European supercars lived in Beverly Hills penthouses, and dated Playboy models while dodging federal indictments. Then, two FBI officers with the Organized Crime Drug Enforcement Task Force entered the picture. Dirty agents willing to fix cases and identify informants. Suddenly, two of Rossini's associates, confidential informants working with federal law enforcement, were murdered. Everyone pointed to Rossini. As his co-defendants prepared for trial, U.S. Attorney Robert Mueller sat down to debrief Rossini at Leavenworth Penitentiary, and another story emerged. A tale of FBI corruption and complicity in murder. You see, Pierre Rossini knew something that no one else knew, the truth. And Robert Mueller and the federal government have been covering it up to this very day. Devil Exposed, a twisted tale of drug trafficking, corruption, And murder in the city of angels. Available on Amazon and Audible.
3: Bailout is a psychological true crime thriller that pits a narcissistic con man against an egotistical pathological liar. Marcus Shrinker, the money manager who attempted to fake his own death during the 2008 financial crisis, is about to be released from prison and he's ready to talk. He's ready to tell you the story no one's heard. Shrinker sits down with true crime writer, Matthew B. Cox, a fellow inmate serving time for bank fraud. Shrinker lays out the details. The disgruntled clients who persecuted him for unanticipated market losses, the affair that ruined his marriage, and the treachery of his scorned wife, the woman who framed him for securities fraud, leaving him no choice but to make a bogus distress call and plunge from his multi-million dollar private aircraft in the dead of night. The 11.1 million dollars in life insurance, the missing 1.5 million dollars in gold. The fact is, Shrinker wants you to think he's innocent. The problem is, Cox knows Shrinker's a pathological liar and his stories a fabrication. As Cox subtly coaxes, cajoles, and yes, cons Shrinker into revealing his deceptions, his stranger-than-fiction life of lies slowly unravels. This is the story Shrinker didn't want you to know. Bailout. The Life and Lies of Marcus Shrinker. Available now on Barnes & Noble, Etsy, and Audible.
4: Matthew B. Cox is a con man incarcerated in the Federal Bureau of Prisons for a variety of bank fraud-related scams, Despite not having a drug problem, Cox inexplicably ends up in the prison's Residential Drug Abuse Program, known as RDAP, a drug program in name only. RDAP is an invasive behavior modification therapy specifically designed to correct the cognitive thinking errors associated with criminal behavior. The Program is a non-fiction dark comedy which chronicles Cox's side-splitting journey this first-person account is a fascinating glimpse at the survivor-like atmosphere inside of the government-sponsored rehabilitation unit. While navigating the treachery of his backstabbing peers, Cox simultaneously manipulates prison policies and the bumbling staff every step of the way. The program How a Conman survived the Federal Bureau of Prisons Cult of RDAP. Available now on Amazon and Audible.
1: If you saw anything you like, links to all the books are in the description box.